Hey friends, your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish here with another episode of the Lazy D&D Talk Show. In this weekly show, we talk about all things D&D. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to help support shows like this and get access to all kinds of cool exclusive material, which we're going to show a bit of in the next segment, you can do so by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. You can find a link to become a patron in the show notes below. It is going to be a good month for Sly Flourish patrons. So I last month I released a uh, a guide called the City of Arches. The City of Arches is a it's about how many pages is this thing? I should I should know right. Twelve page guide it might be a little longer when I'm fully done with it. That describes a advent, a city of adventure that you can drop into your game. It is built around the idea of it's built around the idea of numerous arches that exist in an ancient city, and wanderers come through these arches. So you could be native to the city, you could have come from a distant land and come to the city, or you could have stepped through one of the arches from another world, and it could be from any world. It's a it's a city where all of the goofy races that exist in D and D make sense and are welcome. It's also built around adventure. There's ruins underneath. There's ruins up in a mountain. There are the portals you can go through, the archways, all kinds of interesting stuff. So it's a really cool guide. I've talked about this on a previous episode. I just did a prep video. There will be a prep video coming out later this week that talks where, where I use the City of Arches as a backdrop for an adventure that I ran for a friend of mine. So neat stuff. But one of the new features, one of the new things that patrons are going to get in March is a player's guide. It occurred to me. I talk all this nonsense about having a one-page player's guide for stuff. Why don't I have a player's guide for the City of Arches? And I was running a group through the City of Arches last night. So I said, I want to give them a player's guide. So I wrote a one-page player's guide, and this is it. And this will be available to patrons. I'll probably stick it at the end of the City of, of, the, the City of Arches PDF. So I'll, I'll make sure to update it, but it'll be, it'll be part of it. So it is a cool one-page guide that you can hand to your players to give them an idea about what the City of Arches is like. It's also a handy thing for a DM to read and go, ah, so that's what the City of Arches is about without having to read the entire PDF, but it's not a huge PDF. So this will be available pretty pretty soon. I think I think in early, in early March, I'll make this available. If you are on the Patreon Discord channel, you can get access to it right away. I, I, I throw a lot of things out there to get tests and get feedback. So if you want to get early releases of stuff that's on Patreon, you can go there and check it out. And it works. It, it works really well. So I thought it was fun. I sent it out to my players and they, it gave them a good idea of the kind of stuff that's going on. The other cool thing, if you saw at the end of the PDF, is this kind of scratchy rough map of what the city of arches looks like and people are like ah, that's not bad that works i was like yeah but no so i want to commission something so i commissioned a chloe ballard who did maps for the lazy dms companion she was really really great and i said could you do this a black and white one because it'll fit the black and white style of this and she looked at it and said yeah and we talked a lot about it and she's been working on it the last few weeks and this is the most recent version of it and it is freaking gorgeous i just i just love it it is so cool and it has things in it that that make me rethink about how the city is going to go we're not quite done yet there's tiny little tweaks that we're gonna that we're gonna put in here but it will be it will be available pretty soon certainly within the next week or two isn't that wild and just you know just look at the look at the details of this thing so we are going to release this. It will be it will be in the book, of course. It'll pro I think I'm going to redo the cover, right? <laughs> I'm going to use this art for the cover. And one of the things, and I'm going to make it available as a high-res image. So if you are in the Patreon, you can get a, a high-res. If you want a nice print out of this, put on your wall, because it's really cool. 
you can do so. And there'll be a labeled and an unlabeled version. So all all the all the kind of stuff that you would expect. We're gonna we're gonna really do up this map because it's just it's 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 too great not to. So that is going to be coming out as well. I think it is just awesome. I really love how the city of arches is playing out. And the more my mind dives into this place, you know, the more I think about like what we can do with it and where we can go and and what it can be. So I really I really like. Yes, area eight is the the bath where the devil went. Right. Devil was summoned here at Fort, not summoned, but came, stepped through the gate, was handed his gift basket with uh, the fancy soaps, the, the scented soaps and the fancy cheeses, the artisanal cheeses. And then he was told, hey, go to the bath. And so Garland Willowmane took him to Area 8, where he then bathed with all the other naked citizens. And they were like, hey, look at that. There's a horn devil in the bath. Huh? Hey. And he's like, hey. And like, hey, how's it going? He's like, I don't know. I'm figuring things out. He's like, yep. So really fun place. And I love it. You know, it really, the city of arches really fits. It has a, like a lot of philosophies, but one of them is like, it's an optimistic place. It's a cool place. You, I always want to build, whenever I'm building a settlement, I want to build a settlement you want to live in. I don't want to build some grimy, terrible place where like, you know, every third day, something terrible happens. Although really, honestly, like every week, something happens in the Deep Delver's Enclave and Grendelroot. But they're always like, yeah, it's a good place. But this is like a place you'd want to be. There's a lot of intrigue. There's a lot of danger. There's a lot of cool adventure sites. There's all this stuff underneath the city. There's all these catacombs up above. There's all the portals and the weird stuff going on there. But man, like generally speaking, this is a place you'd want to hang out. There's great food. There's nice people. There's fun events. It's just a cool place to be, but also have adventures. And I really wanted to encapsulate that on top of the idea of having a place where any race from any core book or any, you know, anytime you want a weird race to show up, if you Loxodon or Lion People or Kenku or whatever, they make sense here. Everybody's kind of a mixed bag. So, so that is the map by Chloe Ballard that will be released in the PDF probably probably mid-march because we're gonna have to do a lot once we have the map complete you know it's getting into the thing getting all the different versions all that stuff but that'll be available to patrons this month the third so there's four things we're showing off for patrons this month lots of lots of stuff for patrons right player's guide map the obsidian skull the obsidian skull is the first adventure set in the city of arches it was intended to be a one hour adventure, but I don't think it can fit in one hour. I've, I've, people have tried it and they already said it. it's like two and a half. So it's like a two hour adventure. I think really you can only get away with a two hour adventure. And it is a two page, very simple adventure, three chambers where you are sent to recover an obsidian skull that is being used to draw some kind of horror out of a out of an archway. It uses a very simple Dyson map. It's actually a piece of a Dyson map, little slight modification. I wonder if you can tell where I made the modifications to the map. One of his commercial, one of the maps that he makes available for commercial use. And it's a very simple adventure that's intended for first level characters to go and get involved in an adventure in the City of Arches. You go to one of the crypts up in the thing. You go into the crypts. There's crazy cultists, of course. The cults are working with an obsidian skull to summon a nasty creature. They eventually summon a dretch and off and you're off to the races. Three chambers, straightforward stuff. It's got a mixture of role-playing, exploration, and combat, even though it's a very condensed adventure. But it was my first, like, just, you know, let's let's just have a tiny little adventure set in the City of Arches where you can you and some friends can get together for a couple of hours and play a little bit of D&D. You can use any of the pre-gen characters, everything like that. So that is the... Uh, obsidian skull that too will be i get again i got little edits i want to make like i say it's a one hour adventure i'm gonna say a two hour we're gonna go with a two hour adventure maybe one to two hour i don't know like i would like you know 
I don't know how long. Different groups take different amounts of time. I think I say roughly two hours, right? But it's only three rooms. Like it's a really small. It was like as small as I could make an adventure that had all of the pillars in it, right? Short of just an encounter, short of, short of having just one scene. If you're going to have anything that counts as an adventure, you kind of need at least three. But like it starts you off right at the front door, you know, so on and so forth. Anyway, so that is the Obsidian Skull, the first of the adventures for the City of Arches that will be out uh, in March as well. The last thing I want to talk about, it has nothing to do with the City of Arches. It has to do with this show that you're watching right now. I am closing in on 50 episodes of the Lazy D&D Talk Show, and I talk about many different topics on this show. Unfortunately, there hasn't been a good way for you to find the topics to find a group of all of the topics. So for example, I do product spotlights. It would be really nice if there was a set of links that said, here are all the product spotlights that Mike did. So you could go and see each one. Even I could go back and see each one. I originally had a giant list of, of all of them that I pasted in. Every one of my videos is bookmarked in YouTube. You can go and see in the table of contents and see the subjects. And that way you can jump to whatever section you want to find. But there wasn't one place to find it all. So I made one. Uh, fr last Friday, actually... A little bit ago, and then last Friday, I created this Notion page called uh, the Lazy DD Talk Show Video Topics Database. Trendy name, right? This is a list of every one of the topics. Look, it's got hundreds. There are more than 500 topics. The list goes on and on and on. From every video that I've done for about the last year, a little bit more than a year. I'm going to load them all so we have them all in there, right? And it has the topic, it has a tag, the tag is really important, it has a link to the actual video, which is bookmarked to that section of the video, and it's got the date, so you can see what date. This is the weird one, the November 28th, I don't know, somehow I have one talk show, it was like the first talk show I did that I bookmarked, that goes back to November 28th, 2020, but generally they started in May 2021. And what you can do, you can go up to the top here. So it, it does it in, in reverse order. So these are the topics from last week, right? We're overwhelmed with lore and lots of patron questions, D&D news topics, Kickstarter spotlights, product spotlights. But you can go up here and click this little link here. And you can go to product spotlight. And you get all of the product spotlights uh, that exist. So any any of the ones that you want to see, Dwarven Forge with Albert Rodeo, Toma Beast 2, Printable Heroes. I, so this includes uh, patrons and stuff like this. Old School Essentials. So we're going to talk about Old School Essentials today. So you can click that. It goes right to YouTube. Next, we have... So so if you want... And it jumps right to that section of the video where I'm talking about that particular, that particular thing, right? And I talk about Old School Essentials. So that way, instead of... My exception, yeah. Let's watch a video of Mike watching a video. You know, but any one of the topics, if you're curious, like, oh, you know, did I do a thing? And I, a lot of times it's me because people will ask, oh, have you ever talked about 13th age? And I can say, yeah, right. Here's the link. You go right here and it's me talking about 13th age, right? I got a whole section of me talking about 13th age. So this is a great, I, I feel like it's a really useful way to make those videos far more useful than just the one hour show from back to front. It is a way of turning all of those videos into individual clips of all of the different things. You want all the hot takes? Right, you go to you go here. You go to commentary, right? And I have all the things: 4E skill challenges versus Blades in the Dark. What products should one make? This is actually mistagged. This is a RPG industry tip, right? So you can. Some of them are going to be wrong. If you find a wrong one, let me know. Let me know in Discord. Let me know somewhere else, and I'll and I'll fix it. And you know, because these these the tags I had to do manually. 
but it's a really, I think it's a handy way. You want to see just the DM tips. I don't typically do a lot of DM tips in the, apparently I do. I was going to say, I don't do a lot of DM tips. And then here's a bunch of DM tips, 49 different DM tips, right? That I talk about. So anytime I'm talking about it, I tag that section and I put it in. I'm going to keep this up to date probably once a month. So every month I'm going to take the last four videos and I'm going to uh, add the links and fix it all up. There's a bunch of little Python coding that has to, that has to happen and stuff like that. So I thought that was, and you can get them descending or ascending, of, of course. So this 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 little view button here, you know, let's just look at the things Mike talked about that had to do with Watsi. Handy way to see all this stuff. So you get you. This will be linked as one of the Patreon rewards. If you if you are a Sly Flourish patron, there is a single page that has all of the rewards that you get for being a patron. It's a lot of stuff. Definitely a lot of stuff. And this is a link there. So you can take that link, you can bookmark it, you can do whatever you want. It is also pinned in the Sly Flourish Discord, Patreon Discord channel. So all of the rewards are also linked in the Patreon Discord so you can get to them easily there. There, there is a handy, there is a handy way to go. It just occurs to me, I could make a bot. I could make a bot and you could type in a query and you could, you could get whatever topics. Ah, some other time. That is the... Let's see, go to our show notes here. So that is the Lazy d, d Talk Show topic database. Those are all of the Patreon things. Thank you for hanging out while I talk about all the patron things. I know there's some people who are like, I'm not into Patreon or whatever. I get it. I understand. Not a problem, right? Here to help everybody. But there's a lot of stuff that I'm doing that takes a lot of significant time and effort. And that stuff is the stuff that I'm going to give back to. Give back to the patrons who are truly, who are really helping to support all this stuff that I'm doing. Let's talk about a product. We're going to talk about a product called Uncaged Goddesses. Uncaged Goddesses is the fifth book of the Uncaged series. There's a series of books on the DMs Guild called Uncaged. They have volumes one through four, and this is the fifth, the fifth volume. Yeah, isn't that cover badass? That, that is a seriously badass cover. And the whole book, the design of the whole book is like this. Uncaged has a really interesting, fun take, and that is to take a lot of what is really pretty misogynistic uh, lore and mythology that has existed for thousands of years and turning it on its head, right? Like, how about we, you know, how about we sympathize with a Medusa once in a while instead of being like, ah, oh, Medusa are like these vain, terrible women, right? So they've done this for all of their different books and they make for some really interesting fun adventures that they've done across all of this. I highly recommend all of these all of these books. And they they were they were spear mic spear they were spearheaded originally by Ashley Warren who put this together. Ashley Warren is she she has endorsed this one but it is actually written by a different team than the other four uncaged uncaged volumes. And this volume in particular, this is a list of all the credits here. This book in particular, 297 page PDF, 20, I think it's $20 or 25. It is 20 bucks, which is a, that's, that's a really good price. Uh, let me, let me put a link to it in. You can pick up a copy of this book. You can, you can down in the show notes, you can find a link to it. You can click on it and you can buy it. And I, I recommend it. I recommend you do. It's very cool. So the neat thing about this one, which is also like, wow, that opened up some eyes. This is a tier four. It's a set of encounters and adventures for tier four characters, level 17 to 20. And that immediately got my attention because there's not a lot of stuff out there that really focuses on high level D&D. Right, it's really, really hard to write stuff for high level D and D, and it's also really hard to find people 
to run it and play it, right? Like high tier D&D is a hard thing. Something we talk about often in the D&D Discord and that I talk about often with my other TTRPG marketing friends, TTRPG uh, developer friends is that like there's not a lot of people willing to play and it's really hard to write. So like Fantastic Layers, uh, the book that I wrote with Scott Gray and, and James Casso, we have tier one through tier four content in that book. Testing the tier one, two, tier one and two content, not that hard. Tier three and four, harder. Tier four, really hard to get good play tests. Have anybody even play test it was really hard. People don't want to run it and, and it's really, really hard to run. But boy, so they're doing a whole book on just tier four right? Which is really interesting. But what I liked about it and what occurred to me when I was reading this is this is a book more than, more than anyone that probably, I don't know if this is true. I don't know how they decided it. The content of the book is what's driving the tier, not the other way around. So it's not like, okay, we have tier four content. What are we going to write for them? It's, we are going to write a whole book about dealing with the gods, real dealing with goddesses in particular, right? It's called uncaged goddesses. So we're going to have a book about goddesses, right? And if you're going to have a bunch of characters deal with a bunch of goddesses, that's probably tier four work, right? Like you could probably do a handful of adventures that are low tier where you're dealing with goddesses, but generally speaking, you're going to, like, that's, that's the business of tier four characters. This is the stuff tier four characters are going to do. This, this gets into my whole philosophy that levels mean something in the story, right? Levels mean something that tier, the kinds of adventures that your first to fourth level characters go on is different than the kind of adventures your fifth through 10th level characters go on, different than your 11th through 16th and different than your 17th through 20th. Those stories change. Can you take the same general models and run one tier there? Yeah, you can. James Castle wrote a really, really popular adventure for the DMs Guild in which you fight a lich at first level right? You're, you're part of a team that's fighting a lich at first level. It can be done. James Intercastle also wrote an adventure where you fight a hundred Tarasks at 20th level. So, you know, a lot of variance there, but generally speaking, the kinds of stories that occur are, are at different tiers. And it's that idea of local problems, regional problems, world or large continent or world problems, and then planar problems. That's kind of one way to break out those four tiers. And in here they did. It is, these are planar problems dealing with goddesses. Thus, you're going to probably want to be tier four in order to do it. The adventures themselves are relatively, relatively short and straightforward. They, they focus heavily. First of all, let's talk about the design, right? It is a gorgeous book. It is a gorgeous book. The artwork is, you know, unique artwork, you know, a lot of unique artwork for this. Look at, look at, like that art is as good, I, you know, that art is as good as anything you'd find in Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. This is another adventure about the Frost Maiden. All right. Really, really neat stuff. The page design is excellent. The editing is really good. I haven't, I, you know, I didn't like, this is a spotlight, not a, not a review, right? So I didn't read the whole thing, but I did poke around and I didn't find anything that jumped out at me. I'm like, Ooh, editing. All right. Not true with some other stuff that I've hit recently from other developers. I'm like, Ooh, you know, you put a lot of money into it. You might've wanted to have a copy editor. So really great design, really cool layout. Uh, I, I like it very much. And the in adventures are pretty short. They're like four or five page adventures. They have neat maps in them, of course. And I think the when you buy the PDF, you get uh, separate maps that you can use. And a lot of the story, so I read, I read a couple of these. 
And what I found is that the stories are definitely like flavor rich stories. This is not the kind of, these are not like 20th level delves. They're different than like the 20th level or the, the high tier delves that I've got in fantastic layers. Those are really, they have a story, but they're boss battles. They're built for these like big combat encounters, right? This is not the case. There are definitely combat encounters in this book, but it's not built. It's not built around that, right? It is, it is built around the story of these goddesses and what's going on with them and how the characters get involved. Uh, wide range. One of the things about the about the uncaged series overall is you can see they have look at the range of writers, right? A lot of different writers that wrote a lot of different stuff for this, right? So very similar, like your Candlekeep mysteries and things like that, where a lot of different writers are brought in. That is really hard to do. It's really hard to to wrangle a bunch of writers together to get the kind of content that you can put into a book. Really, really hard work and paid off here, right? Really, really cool stuff. So I like it very much. Again, fun stories to read. You know, fun. You could you could definitely run them as one shots. One of the things that they did. Let's see. Let's go to the back of the book here. God, look at that. All right, look at the art for this. I think that's Char. I don't know. Really, really cool. Good bios on all the uh, all the writers. So one of the things they did in the back of the book here. Hey, look. Oh, that's so cool. Maps and handouts for the book all in the back. Again, I think these are all separate as PDF or separate as images that you can uh, use. Yeah, printable maps and handouts. And they have they have pre-gen characters, high-level pre-gen characters set for each of them that have descriptions of all of the abilities and effects that they have. I am sure that people will look at these and say, well, that's not how I would have done it because almost everybody's going to want to build a high-level character a different way tough right like if you want to if you want a pre-gen here's a pre-gen i think that's a that's a really good i think that's a really good way to hey my mom is here hi mom it's a really really cool i mean it's a good idea to put pre-gens in here the hard part is when you're doing pre-gens at, at this high level somebody's gonna be like oh i can't believe you did this or i can't believe you didn't give them this item or i can't believe you didn't take this ability or whatever now the neat thing because this is a dm's guild book they actually can touch on all of the lore that exists in Forgotten Realms and all of the lore that exists that Wizards of the Coast has made available to made available on the DMs Guild. So one of the things that I look for a lot of times when I'm looking at a DMs Guild product, and this is actually, I mean, a criticism isn't isn't the right term. It is a question that I brought up when I was looking at the first Uncaged books, because I saw the amount of energy that went into them. Right, I saw how much. They're so, they're big books from a lot of authors with crazy good design and all of this stuff. And I was like, why are you paying Wizards of the Coast? Look at that, holy cow. Why are you paying Wizards of the Coast 20% of your revenue for adventures about mythological creatures that have been around for 5,000 years, right? If you're gonna have an, 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 an adventure that takes the concept of Alamia and changes it so it's not this crazy misogynistic story that existed in mythology. You don't need to give Wizards of the Coast 20% of your revenue for Lamia stuff, right? Now, they definitely flavored in uh, Forgotten Realms lore. The question is, did they need to, right? And you don't, you don't need, I didn't think they needed to in the other books. And, and what I think about is like, what if you'd kickstarted that, right? Like how, how much, what, what could have, what, you know, how much more successful might it have been and how much more reach might it have if it was available on other platforms other than just the DM skill. But once you've published it to the DM skill, it's stuck there. This book, on the other hand, 
you can't get away with that because this book is written around the gods of Wizards of the Coast Pantheon, right? It is the D&D Pantheon. So you could write a book about gods and you could kind of hem and haw and hedge your bets and make them different, but it's not going to be the same. If you were going to write about Oral and Loth and these other goddesses, right? Then, oh God, the art is so good. You're definitely going to want to write it. You know, you, you're going to want to look, there's a whole thing about Lady Omaro, right? You're definitely going to want to have access to all of that intellectual property, which makes it worth paying 20% of your revenue to Wizards of the Coast. So you have access to all this stuff. So this book, I, I, that was my general criticism. And again, criticism's not right because they're free to do what they want. They made a choice, right? And they put it in the guild. Good on them. Many of the people who wrote for them, first ones, like in some cases worked for the DMs Guild. And many of them had written many other things for the DMs Guild. So it makes sense. There was just this part of me that's like, you know, why is Wizards of the Coast getting 20% for, for adventures about Medusa, right? But this one, it makes sense. This one, there, there's no argument to be made that this book is the kind of book that you can really only make on the DMs, on the DMs Guild. And it makes, it makes sense. So my one complaint with the with this book relatively minor complaint but it's something that that certainly has an effect when you're dealing with high tier stuff is that sometimes the, the the development of the stat blocks that exist is inconsistent there were a couple of times where i was looking at a stat block i'm sure i won't be able to find one right off the top of my head but it was sometimes where i looked at a stat block and some pretty basic things were missing like they would have stat blocks of monsters that didn't have the static damage value next to the next to the dice value. I know a lot, most people roll damage dice, and so it doesn't really matter. But it's an example of like an inconsistency in the design, where like some monster stat blocks were done very well, everything worked fine. Other other stat blocks, clearly they somebody else had developed it. That's the kind of thing you're going to find when you're have a lot of different authors that are writing for you. If you're assuming that the authors are going to do the development of the monsters, which is a pretty good assumption, that's most of the time, you're going to get an inconsistent style of monsters. Normally, what you would do is you'd have a developer, right? You'd have a single developer, somebody who's just all, all about the stats for stuff, who would go through all of them, make sure that they're all consistent, make sure they're all meeting the, the, the they're all meeting whatever specification you have and that they all fit with that. When you're doing a product like this, probably hiring a whole separate developer to do that is just beyond the beyond what you can afford so i get it and in many cases it's like well dms will figure it out anyway the other hard part is high level monsters are so hard to get right anyway a dm that's going to run this stuff is really going to be having to do some tweaking just to build it around their characters anyway so it's a relatively minor thing but because it is a high level adventure i'm trying to bring up a stat block here you know and in many cases they they were just fine i don't remember which one i was looking at but i saw that that like the design of the monster meant like they didn't have the the static damage there was one i i did i i had to complain because like that you know i i complained about oral having like ice darts and there's a stat block for mistra the goddess of magic in here who does like 14 damage with an arcane bolt and i'm like she's the goddess of magic can't she kind of make that as big as she wants like it should do like 496 points of damage you know, that's the problem of the minute you tie a stat block to a god, all sorts of questions come up. Minor stuff. I don't think it gets in the way. It certainly doesn't get away. Like, this is one of these things that's just an enjoyable read, right? It's just fun to be there. Even if you're not running them. And again, man, the art is so good, right? I can't imagine, like, the level of effort it took to make this thing is really, really high. Making stuff like this, I can tell you that getting artwork like that, hard, hard to get it. You know, hard, hard to get artwork of this kind of quality. Neat, just neat stuff. So that is Uncaged Goddesses. Really, really cool book. 
I highly recommend it. You can get on the DMs Guild. Again, it is available in the show notes below. Take a look. So now, let's talk about old school essentials. I did a review of old school essentials on a previous episode of this show where I looked at it. Old school essentials, which is made by Exalted Funeral, is an independent take on the OD&D version of the rules from like the 1978 version of often known as BX or BECMI, right? The 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 D&D basic rules that came out before Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. So, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons is kind of the first edition of D&D, right? This is often referred to as 0E D&D. It is the back in the times when races and classes were not distinct. So you had the dwarf and the elf were considered character classes. That's an easy way to d- differentiate it. If you look back, you can go buy like the classic versions of D&D on the DMs Guild. And it's kind of fun to do to kind of go look at what these original versions of D&D looked like. But man, the it's pretty impenetrable. Like we got to remember that this is the first time D&D existed at all, right? And it was a bunch of people in a basement in Wisconsin figuring this stuff out. And it was not written with lots of feedback and lots of understanding about how this works. So there was a lot of stuff that was just impenetrable. A common one is like no one knew what to do with initiative, right? Initiative was was really, really hard to figure out. And lots of parts of it were hard to figure out. And there's lots of things where like whole subsystems that were like different than the core mechanics and things like that. So what they've done here is said, we like that style of game, but we, but it needs to be cleaned up and presented differently and presented in a way that makes it more easy to understand. And that's what they've done with old school essentials. They've created a version of D&D that is completely compatible with the version of zero E D&D has just slight, subtle, very subtle changes Uh, to try to make it a little bit easier, but almost all of it goes back to there, but it is explained in a way that is far more viable. They are an independent group, so they do independent publishing, which means they go out of print regularly, and then they need to get money to do new print runs. They are running a Kickstarter right now. They have almost 5,000 backers. They have more than a half a million dollars that have come in to reprint these books in box sets. And it comes in two box sets, the classic game set and the advanced expansion set. The classic game set includes four books. They are sewn bound. They are really, really nice quality books. I have I have like the big the big essentials box that has it all. And it includes five books, seven character classes, 100 spells, 200 monsters, all this stuff. And again, kind of hitting that that I, I probably the basic expert level, I think. I don't know what what level comes in comes in it. And then they have this expansion that takes it up to like the full BCMI level, 15 extra character classes four more books, advanced rules, more spells, more monsters. So that the two sets together is really like the complete version of this OD&D, you know, OD&D style. The layout is great. The artwork is very cool. Classic kind of black and white art that you would expect from sort of an old school product. But the design and layout is very, very nice. So I'm a, I'm a fan. So if, if this is, if you don't have it and you're interested in having like a kind of, some of it's a bit of memorabilia. It's kind of nice to have like a version of the game that's actually readable and usable that still is tied back to that old version. Necrotic Games, yeah. Necrotic Gnome is the name. Gavin Norman, I'm, I'm hearing. The creator specifically is Gavin Norman. Thank you. So let's 
see. Players of all editions advantage to find many familiar rules levels. Uh, rules cover play for levels one to 14. I think it's at level one to 14 in all of them in, in this set. So here are the five books, right? You have your, your characters, magic, adventures, monsters, and treasures. That was sort of how it was broken up. Those were, I think, the same way that the booklets were broken up back in the original set. So that's kind of what they're hearkening back to. Right. Uh, yeah. So you can see a 64 page book for characters, 48 page for magic, 48 page for adventures. This is guidelines for running these, these things. These aren't adventures themselves, but like how to run a game, 200 monsters uh, in an 88 page monster book and 150 magic items in a 56 page book. So uh, short thread bound books that cover each of these things. You know, you can see the layout. There is a sample somewhere in here. I saw it. And then there's the ultimate dungeon bundle, right? Both books plus a DM screen. Pretty cool. Right, somewhere in here. Oh, I like their side view map. That's really a lot of stretch goals. So free downloads, right? So there's an online rules reference that you can download. There is a, there was one that I thought was kind of the, oh, here's all your character sheets and everything like that. Where was the, I thought they had a good sample, but I can't find it. Anyway, if this kind of thing is for you, if you want to sort of dive back into what D&D &D looked like back then, but in a style that you can actually read, I would back this product, I, this project. I think it is, it, I think it is a cool thing to check out. There are a lot of free samples that you can go download to be like, do I like the way these rules work? One kind of interesting thing is they, they sort of hedge their bets on ascending versus descending scores. So in, in the old version of D and D you had armor class would be a negative, would go up to down. AC 10 was considered terrible ac negative 10 was considered really good right and your likewise your attack scores uh would go up and essentially you subtract armor class from your attack bonus and that's how you get the score right this one offers both ascending as well with plus value you know, armor class that is high and then plus values for your attack bonus which is sort of the opposite right turns out adding is easier than subtracting so this one, they hedged their bets with both, even though the original version did it with subtracting armor class from a uh, attack score and that gave you your target number, which is actually kind of the way that Numenera does it a little bit, right? Kind of interesting. This one offers you both and you can pick, you can pick which one you need, which is fine. Like it's cool that like both, both groups are covered. It doesn't take a lot of extra. It means that you kind of have two rules for all of these things in each set. So very cool Kickstarter. I, I'm probably, even though I own a physical version of the book, I don't have it in this five book version i may i may back this i may back the whole thing just for fun because i think it's pretty cool and to me then it's a neat idea that you can back one whole kickstarter and have a full set of this game that people have been playing for 50 years right this whole idea that like wizards of the coast doesn't own DD, this is an example you can buy this product on its own and have a usable workable fun version of DD that people have been enjoying for 50 years in one set right in a, in a in a set of books that if the internet disappears you still have so very very cool project i i recommend it let's do some patron questions becca i was running three games for three different groups so i decided to reboot and bring all my players into one game and set up a city urban sandbox the players are all excited and i'm really enjoying prepping however my question is do you have any advice for what to prioritize when building a sandbox campaign I love fleshing out my city design, but I find myself falling into the classic traps of planning things I'm not sure my players will visit or interacting with or putting off the start date until it's more perfect. That's, there's the trick, that last part. Is there a lazy DM eight steps for building a sandbox? Uh, yes, the eight steps work for building a sandbox. But 
let's get into more of it. It's that idea that you've been putting off the game to make it perfect. That is a really, that's a tricky, that's a tricky widget right there. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a sticky problem. And we talked about this on the Sly Flourish Discord recently and actually put out a tweet asking people like, how do you avoid getting paralyzed by perfection? Right. And lots of people had different, lots of people had different takes on, on, on things to do. And I'm probably, I might, I might put it together in an article. I think that that's probably a worthy article and maybe a video because that can be a real problem, right? You don't want perfection to get in the way of actually running a game because a game you're not running is worse than a game that you are most of the time, right? It has to be a really terrible game. And perfection is a real issue, but getting into this specific question about like building a sandbox in a city, one of the things I would do, so I like the options of, of like offering three options, right? Like what are, what are three things the characters can do and focusing on those three things so that instead of building out like a whole city with all kinds of different moving parts, you're really saying like, what are the three options that the characters are going to get involved in next? Where can they get involved in offering those options at the end of a session so that they choose one and then focusing on that one and then focusing on your next three options. Think about the style of Dragon of Ice Spire Peak. I really like the model of Dragon Ice Spire Peak. I really like this idea that, you know, there's a job board, the job, there's three jobs on the job board. You pick one, you do it, you come back, you pick one of the other ones, you do that. When you come back, there's three new jobs, right? I think that's a good way for players to be able to kind of filter the kinds of content that they want but also have choices, but not so many choices that you can't figure them out. And the key with those three is you don't have to prep all three, right? If you, what, what I do is I try to offer those options at the end of a session and really you'll only need about three sentences to do each one of those. And the sentences are, where is the job taking place? make What's that interesting? What is the goal that you have to do there? What, do you, what, is, what, what job are you actually going there to do? And what reward do you get? And you can use that model in lots of different places. And again, it's not like, you know, there's an old ruined tower, rescue my poor son, he's lost there, and I'll give you a bag of 50 gold, right? That's an easy one. But there could be like deeper, richer story things that still use that model where like you're working for a patron and the patron is saying like, we need to build up our you know, political power. And in order to do that, we need to do these things, right? And here are three options and here's what we're trying to do in these. And the reward is like continuing to increase the political power of the faction that you're with. So it doesn't have to be like gold pieces, right? Or a, a physical reward, although never hurts. It can be, the reward can be how it's propelling the story in a particular direction. But that model I think works well. The other part about building a city is focusing on the parts of the city that your players care about and that the characters are gonna be interested in. If you have a lot of druids and rangers, what's the part of the city, where's the druids grove? Where's, where's, the, where's the city park that the characters can go, that the, that the druids and rangers can hang out in that they like? Is there a monastery for your monk? Is there a, a church or a temple for your paladin and cleric? Is there a fighting pit for your fighter, right? Look at the characters and build the parts of the city that make sense for the characters. Again, this is something in like City of Arches that I tried to do is say like, you know, all of the function, all the places that are inside the City of Arches are designed as places that the characters and the kinds of characters that you would expect would want to go to. So really, again, just like spiral campaign development, which we talked about, focusing on where the characters are, what do they want, what are those specific things around them that they want, and then what are the three different adventure types that they could go on, three different adventures that they might go on, get those out in front of them, and then go. I really like the model of like when you're when you're starting fresh, have an adventure that they start with that you've already prepared. It's one adventure that gets them started, teaches them about where they are and what's going on, and then letting them split off into different paths from there. I think that can really work. So Becca, I hope that I hope that helps. 
Nick says, I'm planning on running Dragon of Ice Peak. Hey, we were just talking about that. Uh, one-on-one with my partner. We're both fairly new to D&D. They've only played through Lost Mine with me, but that's great that you played through Lost Mine, being the DM. I've watched your playthrough videos and have been, and they have been some help. What are the differences between one-on-one versus group play that I should keep in mind? And what are some tips that you would recommend? I have a number of videos and articles on this topic. Uh, I'll link to them in the show notes so that you can see them. And... A big one is like, there, there, there's some things that are going to make it a lot easier. Scheduling is a lot easier. You can break your game down into pieces, which is really nice. You can say like, we're going to have, I, I like this idea of the Sherlock Holmes model. Scene one, three different jobs are brought to the to the main character. Hey, you have like a character and a sidekick. The sidekick goes out and finds jobs. The sidekick comes and says, hey, I've got these three jobs. Which one are you interested in? The character says, I'm interested in this job. You, that's scene one. And you do that in one session. Kind of, right? And that could be going on a walk. That could be talking over dinner. It doesn't have to be sitting down at a table, right? Scene two, an NPC who is responsible for that job shows up, talks about the job, gives more details. Player understands more details, asks questions. Maybe there's a little bit of dice rolling, right? That's scene two, the the interview. Scene three is actually going on the adventure. And that one, you're actually sitting down at a table and actually playing D&D. But because you've done the first two, that's going to be pretty quick. It could be an hour. It could be really short right? So that idea that you can now take a D&D, a traditional D&D game and break it into pieces because it's just the two of you. That's a really powerful thing for a one-on-one game. The other thing that's really powerful is like your combat encounter is going to be really small and short. Always be worrying. When you think about combat encounters, always worry about action economy. Make sure that the action economy in the monsters isn't significantly greater than the action economy of the characters. Just like every character above four in D&D is adding more than the additional sum of the character. The same is true in reverse, that each character removed removes the amount of synergy that characters have. If you have two characters that are knocked out of commission in a game with five characters, that's not insurmountable. But if two characters are out of commission in a one-on-one game, that's all of your characters, right? So you have to be really careful with overdoing it with combat. Easiest ways to make sure there aren't any more monsters than there are characters. And then you can tweak that a little bit. If they're significantly weaker, you can run more monsters and characters, but you want to be careful with it, right? And give them lots of opportunity to fail forward. If they're both knocked unconscious and they're both captured, how can they break their way out? Stuff like that. So that's just a few ideas, but there's, there's, I have more, I have more tips that you can find in the show notes below. So Nick, thank you for that question. It's a really good one. I love one-on-one D&D. I think uh, it's something a lot of people can really enjoy that probably aren't enjoying it. So if you ever thought about one-on-one D&D, do it. It's awesome. Chris W., any tips for lazy DM combat descriptions? In the heat of battle, I struggle to give compelling commentary for attacks that miss or do one point of damage. It's not exactly lazy, but I think the best way to kind of build this in, or one, not the best way, I think one way to build this in that has worked for me is audiobooks, right? I like to listen to audiobooks. And if you listen to audiobooks, sword and sorcery style books in audio, you're hearing people make good descriptions that have been through editors and stuff like that. The books that come to mind are like the Joe Abercrombie books. Joe, Ag- Joe Abercrombie has a whole series of fantasy novels. They're very grim. They're very bloody. They're very gory. They're not super optimistic, but he's a really good writer. I, I think he is. I think he's a really good writer of sword and sorcery and, and, and high fantasy. It's given me a lot of ideas for my D&D games, listening to those books. And I would really, and, and I listened to them in Audible. I listened to them on, as audiobooks. And I really found that like hearing how he describes combat, he doesn't overdo it. Like the combat scenes in those aren't like instruction manuals for fencing, like R. Ray Salvador does with his books. But they, 
they give you a lot of idea. You're going to, you're going to get a, I think, I think you're going to get a better feel for that kind of stuff than you are watching movies or TV shows because seeing combat is very different than describing it. Right. And you're not going to get the same stuff. But when you hear someone else describing combat, you know, you start to pick up ideas at work and certain metaphors at work and certain descriptions at work. And you just kind of let that seep into your brain. So I would recommend listening to audible, listening to audio, reading it, it works too. You can just read it, right? And you have the same kind of process. But I think hearing somebody else do it wires it into your brain differently. So that's my best tip is listen to audiobooks, sword and sorcery audiobooks. And if you're looking for a recommendation, the Joe, if you can take them, the Joe Abercrombie books, I think are really good. And there's a lot of them. It's like six or seven books. Justin C says, I've noticed a few other RPG content creators either explicitly mention or implicitly include letting their players contribute to their world building. The best example is Matt Colville's Dust Campaign, where he regularly refers to Deal Kingsmith's elf lore as cool contributions to his world. Or even more generally, just ask the players what they think might work when they ask about some piece of lore related to their character. Do you think any, do you do anything like this? Do you have any thoughts about how one might go about this in a lazy DM way? I'm actually, so I'm not against it. I, I think that the idea of group world building is a really powerful idea that works. I just tend not to do it a lot myself. Uh, I will certainly grab onto things that the characters bring to the table. I've certainly, they'll make off the cuff statements that then become truth. I do that, I do that a fair amount of time. But I don't really have an organized, uh, an organized approach for it, right? And I, and I think that, you know, it's not because like I don't want to give control over my campaign. It's like, it's not an easy thing to do. And it's, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of busy with other things. So it's, it's kind of hard for me to grab onto it. So I don't really have a good lazy DM way to do it. I think it's a, I think it's an interesting approach. There are a lot of books that talk about how to do this kind of thing, about how to do, you know, how to build adventures a, a good one is like the game fiasco like playing fiasco is a really interesting way to watch the world get built while the players are building it there's other games too i'm but i just ran blades in the dark right and then you could see like i struggled with blades in the dark for this very reason that idea of like leaving things open enough that they would kind of come up that's tough to do the other trick is playing online because of all the communication difficulties that exist when you're playing online that can make it a little harder to riff off of stuff so it can be tricky. Uh, I don't think I've got any good lazy tricks. It's obviously a lazy trick to take what the players bring and run. So I think that 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 is a uh, that is a good trick. But I don't have any. I don't, I don't think I have a great answer. I'm sorry, Justin. I failed. Rango, how differently do you think Five E would have developed if magic items had been in the PHB and feats in the DMG? Interesting. I don't know. And. I, I kind of don't speculate on that because that's not how it worked out, right? So I don't know how it would have been different. That was kind of how fourth edition was, right? And fourth edition, the player's handbook had magic items in it, and but it also had feats. The, the idea of feats being in the DMG is really interesting. I don't think it would have worked out, right? And I think that feats have become such a standard fare for D&D since third edition and, and then, and people pick up on them because it's a really, like, it's a really good way to customize your character, right? It's another whole angle to customize a character that you don't typically get to do. And I see a lot of people that like, they want more feats. So they add, they add feats into their game. So Mr. Burnt Rogers says, I'm sounding tinny. Am I sounding tinny to anybody else? Anybody else having a problem with my audio or, or hopefully it's just Mr. Rogers having difficulty on their end. Good. Just making sure so that it wasn't some kind of problem because I would just touch the mic and I was like, oh, I just showed something up. Thank you all. All right. Back to the question. So kind of it doesn't matter. I, I think the idea of putting feats in the DMG would be interesting. I think it would have been interesting if they, they really tried to make it an optional rule, right? 
That's that's kind of interesting. Putting magic items in the player's handbook would be different because players would expect them. And it's and one of the core differences between fifth edition of D&D and fourth edition is that the math for, mon- for the math for magic items are not included in the math for the game. So there's a question of like, you know, is this a trick question? Like you think they should have been put that way, right? Like you think it's good. I don't I don't really have an opinion on it because I think like we we have what we have and I think it worked out fine. I hard hard to say. So I guess the question is like should they change in the future? Well, no one's asking me and I bet they won't. It makes sense that feats are in the player's handbook and and magic items are in the DMG to me. Helena says, following the model of adventure types in the Lazy DM's Companion, how would you approach creating random tables for an adventure centered on the PCs escaping from something hunting them? Really good. That's a great question. So one of the one of the ways that I did the design of the Lazy DM's Companion, thank you for picking up the book, was I, I often said, like, what are the random tables that tie around this this scenario? So let's let's think of some real quick here. And generally, it would come with five or six tables. Right. And you want five or six different tables of one, to, ideally one to 20 that all kind of center around this area. Do I recommend that a player or do I recommend like a DM do that? I mean, you can. It's a fun, creative exercise, but it's probably more than you need. But, you know, it's the kind of thing I do. But like, what would the variables? So I say, like, what are the variables that surround this? Right. So that you have the PCs escaping from something that is hunting them. Right. So you, an easy one is location. Right. Where does this take place? Another obvious one is what hunts them, right? Easy. So those are two real easy ones. I would have a I'd probably one for minions. What minions serve the hunter? And that way you have some options for like smaller creatures that are attacking. A good example of this, if you want a movie that I really like that I think fits this, it's the movie Pre- Predators. I think it's Predators. It's the Robert Rodriguez relatively recent predator make with a bunch of different people that are being hunted by multiple predators, but they start off with like predator dogs, right? There's like alien dogs that are chasing them. So there are creatures that they can deal with that aren't predators. And then there's predators who are certain. And then there's like King predator who's really good. Right? So that idea of having minions, uh, that works well. What are, you know, if we had three other complications, so uh, one could be complications, how does the scenario change? What other variables? If we had two other variables for being for being hunted by something. Like you you want you, you know, you want it complex enough. Oh, benefits or 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 boons, right? What are some things the the characters can acquire that that aid them, right? And then probably one is like how can they escape, right? Can they is it just killing the monster? Is it finding a way out what are you know i'll tell you it might be a little hard but like what are 20 different ways that the scenario can end right that might be a little too hard but it could be 10 right so stuff like that what are the variables that surround the scenario if you've got a scenario pluck out the pieces and say what are the individual variables that make this scenario and then what are all the different possible options for each of those that's kind of how the model for the Lazy DM Companion Works. That's how that book was put together. So Helena, I hope that uh, answers your question. Andy R says, I know Monsters in the Multiverse is something I have feelings about. 
I like your advice about not judging things before they come out, but I'm listening to the buzz and keep coming back to two main questions. Do you think that the added lore is intentionally designed to tie generic IP more tightly to WotC controlled properties, i.e. goblins from Faye are now because that's more D&D property? Or two, as WotC adds more and more character building flexibility, do they risk undermining the value of their resources? For example, part of what we may pay for when we buy published resources is clear guidance about uh, what creatures in the fantasy world generally do and how they act so we can drop them without making a ton of decisions. If any race can be anything, is there any point in which we wonder why we're paying Watsi? Not sure I get the your final sentence there. And I, 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 you know, I always start with like, why not just start by believing them, right? So if Watsi is saying, and they have said, they said in their designer blogs, that one of the reasons they started to change things around in like the descriptions of Mordenkainen's and Volos and the descriptions of character races and stuff like that, that so some of it we knew was just plain problematic again all goblins are black-hearted little humanoids that just steal from you and all orcs are a bunch of savages that want to like destroy your villages right that just doesn't sit well anymore and that's fine right because it's actually a far more interesting to have a rich history for goblins and a rich history for orcs if you want to see an example of that check out eberron eberron has a far better history for orcs and goblins than than like traditional kind of forgotten realm stuff so there's that but then the other aspect was that they have all of these different worlds that are coming out and assuming a Forgotten Realms-centric approach, which they kind of did in their descriptions. They didn't really, but they kind of did. Having that sort of Forgotten Realms description meant that they were like, it didn't work with Eberron and it didn't work with the Ravnica and it didn't work in Theros and it didn't work in, you know, Wildmount, right? So going back to say that what they're describing for these characters need to be able to fit in all of these different worlds. I think it makes sense that they're doing that. Now, how do they do that? The idea that, and I guess you get, if any race can be anything, I guess if we're saying like, you know, if any race can be good, bad, or indifferent, then what do you actually get? I mean, that's a good point. Like, what do you, how do you write about the drow, right? How do you write a general description of a drow when the drow from Eberron and Forgotten Realms and probably Ravnica, I don't even know what the drow are like in Ravnica, but and and Wildmount are so different, right? Like, what's the commonality between them other than how they look? Maybe. And even then, like, I changed how Drow looked in Eberron. I was like, Drow are elves, right? Drow look like other elves. All elves, you know, all elves have as much distinction in their skin color as human beings do. And and a Drow was actually like who you followed right? It was almost, it wasn't quite a religion. It was still a culture, but like you couldn't look at somebody and be like, oh, they're a drow, right? It was like, you had to find out they're a drow. And that was more interesting to me, right? I don't think they're doing that in Watsi overall, but that's how I did in Eberron and I kind of liked it. So I don't know, but you know, I don't know. And I don't know what they're going to do. I haven't read the race descriptions in Mordenkainen's Monsters of the Multiverse because it's not out yet really for me, right? I'll get it in May. So in May, I'm going to read it and figure it out. But I don't know. So we'll see, right? The answer is we'll see. And the other answer is I've got all my old books. So I'm okay, right? I don't, I'm not too worried about what they're going to do. And I think some of the changes that I've seen are, are, are just fine. And Alex H says, all versions of D&D are cursed by an evil lich and disappear from the world. What system do you play instead and why? Interesting question. I st- I'm loving Numenera. I love Numenera. I think, I, I mean, I'll, I'll, you know, once I played it for like a few months, I'll really have an idea about that. But am I allowed to play other D20 games or games that are influent? Can I play old school essentials? Does that count as D&D if it, the Lich got rid of it? I don't know. 13th Age? 
You know, there's a lot of systems. Shadow of the Demon Lord, 13th Age, Numenera, Fate. Those are all systems that I really like, right? I have lots of systems that I really like. So there's lots of different ones that I would play. But I really like the Cypher. There's parts of the Cypher system I really adore. And I could see really building off of, uh, really building off a Cypher system. It's really fun. Dan W., I'm currently two years, 40 sessions into a Grendel Root campaign. You have had a longer Grendel Root campaign than I ever had. And I wrote it. And my party is planning to reach into deep, deep reach in order to, in search of artifacts, revenge clues. I have a set of Dyson logo maps, very cool, and ideas about what sort of environments, factions, NPCs, and monsters they might find. But what lazy tips do you have for populating a mega dungeon and then actually planning and running games in it? Yeah, deep reach is a mega dungeon that exists. I would, I would build it like I would build other adventures, which is sort of level by level. Now, one of the fun things about a mega dungeon is the idea that you might have two levels that are interacting with one another and different stairwells that go up and down. So you might take like pairs of levels and turn them into like a central story and treat them as their own adventure location, right? But you're not going to want to plan out a whole mega dungeon. I think having like a, a, a one-line description for each layer, general challenge rating, and like a general story, but not filling it out, I think that can work, you, you know? And then just, you know, depending on how you want to go. But then I would really only worry about the levels that the characters are, are in or are going to pretty quickly. That, that's, that's pretty much what I would focus on. So instead of treating the mega dungeon as one whole big structure, think about it as a group of level, you know, one or two levels and how, what's going on on those, who inhabits them, what story is happening there, and how do those levels interact? Some good models would be take a look at Scarlet Citadel. And obviously, uh, Dungeon of the Mad Mage would be an, another source that you could that you could take. That's really cool that you're planning to head into Deep Reach. Deep Reach was like my little seed of like, hey, there's a mega dungeon under here. Again, to make the whole Grendel Root book essentially infinite in its scope and scale. So that's really cool that you're doing. Thank you for buying it. Thank you for playing it. And thank you for running 40 sessions of Grendel Root. Again, that's more sessions than I ran. Gabor, my friend. Gabor Rex says... In one of your YouTube videos, you mentioned that one of the things players hate the most is losing their stuff and strongly suggesting that DMs not use this tool. That is correct. I feel the same way, but if there were still too many magic items in the team, what other suggestions do you have? How could this be rebalanced? I have two. I had two weak moments because of the San Francisco 49ers won two games in the playoffs and in the NFL playoffs, like a falling airplane, there are no atheists and I have the vault of magic. I'm not sure how the 49ers resulted in your group getting overpowered, but okay. So you have the vault. Oh, so you've given, my assumption is you got the vault of magic and you've been handing that out. There's not a great way. The easiest way, which is the roughest way is like, Hey guys, why don't we start a new campaign? Right. That's like taking all their items away at once. If you don't want to do that, then you're just going to have to soup things up on the other side, right? Like what are the items they have? What, what problems do they cause in your game and how do you deal with them? To me, the only ones that are real problems, the only times you have items that are real problems are if they make the game a lot longer, like if they take a lot of extra time. This is like the, I don't care about summoning eight wolves. Like it's not overpowered to have summon, you know, summon woodland beings or summon, what, summon animals, whatever it is, right? It's the fact that now one player is taking nine turns. That's the problem. It's the amount of time it takes, right? And, you're, you're, I, I, and, and, and Rex, I know you're running high-level games already, and high-level games just take a long time. So instead, it's like, are the items just overpowered, like they're really powerful? Or are they, is it taking more time? Is it eating into other parts of the game? 
that latter part's harder to deal with. That might be the kind of thing you need to sit outside of the game, talk to the players and say, hey, is there a way we can streamline this? Like, can we pretend they have an item that lets them for one charge summon eight wolves? Can we group the wolves together into something? Can we either turn into different stat blocks so it's one turn? Can we treat it as an area of effect instead of a bunch of monsters? Talk to them and try to come up with a way that makes it less disruptive for the game. If it's just raw power, you've got infinite hit points and infinite monsters on your side. You can just keep turning that dial. That dial has no upper cap. The hit point dial, that thing just keeps spinning, right? Look at the monsters that 2C Gaming is putting out. They put out CR26 monsters with 1,800 hit points, right? They gave you, you know, 2C Gaming has dials that go on forever, right? So you can turn those dials. You can turn those damage dials up. Just start to figure out like, okay, how much damage do I need to really do to threaten these characters? And how much info points do I need to have? And you can put bigger and bigger and crazier monsters out there. You could have like an, an all in, in world, you could have a whole big effect that is making everybody a lot harder. Think about like the blood moon in Zelda, right? Where now some new celestial event has occurred and all the bad guys are a lot worse, right? Things like that. So your side is infinite, right? They might have powerful items. You have more powerful items. The real question is, is, is it, is it getting, is it how, where is it disrupting your game and how do you address that is a real trick. Joel K, how would you recommend finding players to start an online group? Would you put out a recommended place and age limit? For example, 18 plus. It's a good, I, I, I probably wouldn't put an age limit. Right. I don't, I, I mean, it depends. And you could say like, you know, you don't want to run a game for people under the age of 13 or whatever, but I've had like 15 year old kids that are great. Right. So I don't know about an age. I don't think the age limit is really going to help you. I think what can help you. So one thing about running games online, and I've seen other people talk about this, there is a near infinite supply of players and a, and a finite supply of DMS, which means if you're a DM and you go to the right place and say, I want to run game, you're always going to find players, right? It's not hard to find players, especially online, finding the right players, finding the players that you want to have at your game that will fit your support. That is harder. And what I've heard the, the two recommendations and I've, and I've done this and I think it can work. The two recommendations are set up with an application, right? Write an application that they have to fill out that talks about the kinds of games they want to play in, the kinds of styles that they have, and ask them questions that have answers that aren't wrong, but help you differentiate players from one another. So asking like, which are your three favorite pillars? Like how would you weight the three, your three favorite pillars? Or which parts of the game matter the most to you? And, and ask them, like we know that there are people that like mechanics. I, I, have, I have certain styles in my game that I know just Im immediately eliminate certain players from wanting to play with me. Are you comfortable playing theater of the mind? Some are like, no, I'm not, right? And you're like, okay, we're going to be playing some theater of the mind, right? So probably not for you. You could ask like, you know, so you want to build an application. You have to think about it. I probably ought to post some good, good questions. This is a good article, I think. What, are, what would be some, what are good questions to interview players to get a good feel? But you don't, it's, it's like a job interview. You don't want to ask questions that have like, clear right or wrong answers you want to ask questions that have open-ended answers that aren't right or wrong but help you understand the player so you have the application if they get through that and you're immediately going to filter out a bunch of people who aren't going to want to fill it out or don't bother to fill it out if they don't have time to fill an application they don't have time to be in your game right so you put that then now you've got a bunch of applications and then you say oh by the way i would like to have like a half hour talk with you online right and then you meet with them online and have a chat Right. And you could talk about the thing, but to ask them about the kinds of get, get them talking, right? Like, you know, get them to talk about the kind of games they've enjoyed. Ask them, like, tell me about some of the games that you really enjoyed. Tell me the games you didn't really dig. You know, have you ever, have you ever walked out on a game and why? Right. Like, you know, what, what, 
ask these questions, right? And 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 you'll get to know them, right? It, it, it should be like having coffee with a friend, right? If it's weird and awkward, maybe not the best, right? If it, But if it's pretty straightforward, if you're enjoying the conversation you have, you know, then the next step is run a one-shot game, right? You found new players, you brought them in, run like one to four sessions of a, of a game with the new players and see how they work out, right? And if they work, then extend out. So now you've got these layers, right? Layer one, asking people and getting lots of people in. Layer two, application. Did they fill that out? Did you like the answers that you got in the question? Do you think they fit their style? Three, interviewing them. You talking to them? Did you did you did, did, did you guys gel? Did 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 you did it work out when you were, get, were talking, right? And then four is actually bringing metric game. So, those are some areas. There are definitely some some tricky bits in there. Like some people are just a little socially awkward and you don't want to eliminate them for that. Sometimes you're meeting somebody that's really not like you and that can be awkward. You have to, you know, discrimination is a real thing and it's a real thing here too, right? People have to worry about it when they're interviewing for jobs and stuff like that. So you want to be careful about that too. You want to keep that in mind that you're not just looking for somebody who's like you, but also you want to say like, are they going to gel at this game? But with all of those samples, you, you definitely should have a good path. That is all we have time for today. Thank you so much for watching this video. If you enjoyed this video, you can help me out in a few different ways. You can get uh, new Sly Flourish articles to your email inbox every week by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter. The link for that is in the notes below. All of the stuff I talked about at the beginning of this show, the City of Arches, the new uh, database of topics for these videos, you can get access to that by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish as well as helping to support this show directly. That's very helpful. We talked about the Lazy DMs Companion today. This is the book that I put out. You can pick up the Lazy DMs Companion. That's in the notes below. And of course, if you want to help other people find these videos, you can do so by subscribing to the channel, sharing it with your friends and things like that. So thank you all very much for watching the show. Have a great day and get out there and play some D&D.